Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm here with my friend, colleague, sister, Nika Namdi. Introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Nika Namdi. I am the creator of Fight Like Be More and the co-creator of the Stop Oppressive Seizures Fund, where our work centers around remediating blight uh, and making sure that our um, communities are intact. So, you know, a lot of the work, I'm going to focus on some of the stuff of Fight Blight. So um, if you just talk a little bit about just some of the, you know, economic, political, and even social and emotional, cultural impact of Blight in our sure. community. Sure. So probably the most impactful is the social, emotional part. Dr. Full Love talks about this concept of root shock, which basically happens when people are displaced out of community. Because th those who are displaced go to other places where they're not ne necessarily connected with each other, with the, the other residents, where the cultural norms are different and people have some hardship adjusting. And then those folks left behind, again, are disconnected from their loved ones, from their neighbors, and don't have access to the social network that used to exist. And that really creates a sense of apathy. It can create depression. We all know it can create anxiety. You know, even living next to a concentrated vacancy um, there's a study out of, I think, the University of Pittsburgh that talked about what happens when people walk past um, ungreened vacant lots. They experience an uh, elevated heart rate of like seven beats a minute, which is an indication of chronic stress. So the social-emotional piece is probably the most underrated piece, the, the piece that people don't think about it, but I think it's the most impactful. Then, of course, you have the economic pieces like lack of equity, and with, with that comes all kinds of, you know, issues. You can't, you know, take out a loan to fix the property up. You can't take out a loan or access the equity to send a child to college or to pay for some kind of experimental treatment that you might need medically. Um, and then the political, of course, the political aspect of it is you don't get access. When a neighborhood, when a neighborhood has high concentrations of blight, you get poor public service. You get over-policed or hyper-policed. You get a lack of, you know, DPW in terms of your water services. Your, they don't come and do the street cuts for ADA. And then, of course, if you have a community that's full of vacancy, if there are no people, then you can't mobilize to develop power together, to execute uh, whatever kind of social political mobilization or even economic mobilization that a community needs to, to, to be vibrant or to stay vibrant. So one of the things actually I want you to say a little bit more about, because mm -hmm. I want to pivot to thinking about, you know, government policies and thinking about development. But you mentioned one of the impacts of displacement when you was talking about the social emotional impact, about the networks that are disrupted, you know, when blight exists and people are forced to move. And then one of the things I think has become a more common in conversations around development mm -hmm. has to do with this notion that development, or more mainstream rather, is that development, you have to look at the social and cultural capital networks that exist in the community as the basis for development as opposed to just the buildings, just the structure. So if you could say a little bit more about this piece of the importance of the networks indigenous to certain neighborhoods and 
I know one of the things that you want to talk about is like the importance, particularly, you know, the kind of generative power, you know, that black people and black women and a lot of these spaces are able to bring to bear. Like talk about the value of those social cultural networks when we're thinking about like development and empowering the community. So one of the things we have been kind of socializing is this notion of the corner as sacred space, right? We don't think about it that way because it's been so demonized. We spent, I don't know, a decade under the likes of Martin O'Malley um, locking up people for standing on the corner or, st or sitting on their own stoop because the stoop is sacred space too because these are places where we gather together and pass information, um, get support, Everything from, oh, you know, I work at such and so, they hiring, you looking for a job, come down there, I'll talk to somebody and let them know that you coming. Or um, just sharing, there's a, a new government program that, that you can leverage or, or checking on, oh, we haven't seen um, Miss Mary on her stoop. Somebody go walk down there and make sure she okay. Like the, these places in community that are, like mundane that we think of a mundane actually present the like the core pods in our network by which we connect to each other and make sure that we are maintaining well-being right the corner isn't like that's where you go get the news that's where you check in and make sure you know everybody's good. That's also from a security standpoint, sitting on a stoop or standing on a corner, you can see the comings and goings, what's happening. You can, can report and, and secure your neighborhood in a particular way. But because, of course, the ways that black people live and the ways that black people be have been so pathologized and demonized, we see the corner as a, as a negative, um, as a derogatory like place to be or, you know, somewhere we just shouldn't be. And so when you have blight, one of the things that it does is it takes places that are sacred and makes them profane because it creates conditions where the social fabric, those connections, those opportunities to share are removed. They're vacant. Like vacancy is the, you know, it's not to say, like, a vacant lot obviously could be used for many things. It could be an opportunity for many things, but it also can present a danger. And the way we frame things is where there is nothing physically there, we insert a negative connotation to it. Right. And so that's when we really think about the social damage of blight, the social damage of vacancy, it inhibits people's ability to connect because people aren't sharing the same space mm -hmm. with one, you know, with one another. Exactly. So one, so one of the reasons why I wanted you to go deeper there is because when we think about like some of the government policies that need to be addressed, I feel, I feel like it's important for people to be clear that we're talking about government policies that are operationalized by a white supremacist society that's attacking peoples of African descent consistent with how we're attacking other arenas. Right. So if you could talk about some of those government policies um, that you're pushing back against in your work that address some of what you just laid out. Sure. I mean, for one, there's a straight line. For a lot of folks, people think uh, our neighborhoods look like trash because we trash them. Mm. And that is categorically incorrect. If what has happened is every time, if, even if we think about reconstruction, every time black people look like, even if we get the appearance of a come up, 
there's a backlash, right? Whether it's removing the troops out of the South or the election of Donald Trump. It is no different in terms of property um, or home buying or institution building. Anytime you see black folks, particularly in Baltimore, take a step forward and build institutions, whether it's a newspaper, uh, whether it's a church, you start to, especially when it's in concentrations, you start to see Ordinance 610, which is the first residential housing segregation ordinance in America, come on the books. You start to see restrictive covenants, which the Roland Park um, Club um, or the Roland Park Company and the Forest Park Company. Um, it's funny because when I was in St. Louis, St. Louis says they were the first to have restrictive covenants. But in Baltimore, we say we were the first. And when you think about Saint, how St. Louis looks today, in Baltimore, you can see those similarities. But the restrictive covenants piece, whether it's blockbusting, you know, all the way down to today, we see it um, in tax sale. We see it in condemnation. We see it in urban renewal. It's a little bit different because they don't call it urban renewal as much in, anymore as they call it blight remediation. We see these are the things that we're pushing back. Those are the primary ones that we're pushing back against really heavily right now. Um, the ED family and Poppleton is in a fight to keep their home, which has almost been in their family for 100 years, and to keep the Sarah Ann Street houses, which have been occupied since roughly a year or two after the Civil War by black people uninterrupted to keep those in place. When we talk about um, condemnation and demolition and how those policies are used, tax sale, which is basically selling the debt, mm -hmm. the city selling the debt to a third party who mm -hmm. can charge predatory interest and fees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lay, but, lay that out. Talk about that sure. work in Baltimore, because I think that, that to me is a real good concrete example of a particular policy that has cultural implications that I've heard you describe. Lay, okay. Go into detail on that. So, one. you know, in Baltimore you have your property taxes that you have to pay annually or biannually, however you want to pay them. Um, and if, well, let me go back. Before your property tax bill even cuts, Baltimore, the state actually assesses the value of your property in Baltimore on a three-year cycle. They come out and they, um, I, should, I say they come out, but they, I don't know that they actually come out anymore. There are two ways in, in Maryland where you're, that you're two calculations for property taxes. One is gross income calculation and two is a sales approach calculation. The sales approach um, calculates the um, assessed value, which is different than the appraised value, um, of the property based on recent sales. The gross income calculation calculates property taxes based on some mysterious gross income number and some multiplier number that nobody at SDAT has sufficiently explained to me, right? Mm, SDAT. Um, State Department of, of Assessment and Taxation. Mm -hmm. And from that calculation, your assessed value is calculated. And then that assessed value times whatever the property tax rate is, which in Baltimore is something like two point whatever, it's high, it's the highest in the state, creates your property tax bill. You get your bill in July, you have until technically October to pay, and then it's considered delinquent. Um, if you haven't paid by February of the following year, you get what they call a final bill and legal notice. Now consider that this final bill and legal notice can, can, can include property taxes, and if you have $1 of delinquent property taxes, it can include water bill. If you have any 
environmental control board citations, high grass and weeds, um, not having a top on your trash can, any of those types of things, and they reach a particular number, I think it's $750, don't quote me, that also can be, um, it's what they call leanable, it can be turned into a tax certificate and sold. So you get your, in February, you get your property, you get your final bill of legal notice. You have typically until April 30th or April 29th, the last Friday in April, to pay the bill. Now, many people who get the final bill and legal notice are able to pay it off. Folks use their prop, they use their um, tax returns, big borrow still, whatever, to pay it off. But if you aren't able to, the city holds a certificate sale in May. And basically, they take the debt, the certificate, and they sell it to a third party. If your property is owner-occupied, then you have to pay the face value of the debt to the third party, as well as interest of 12%. If your property is not owner-occupied, same deal, but the interest rate is 18%. Now, consider that many of our families have not, have many of our elders have transitioned without an estate plan in place. And so there are many properties that are actually owner-occupied in reality, but not in name. And so those people are subject to that 18%. So then from that point, you have um, six months to pay the debt. After six months, if you haven't paid the debt, now you have to, you incur attorney's fees up to $2,400. And then after nine months, the debt purchaser can file a, uh, what they call a foreclose, the right to redeem, which effectively means if they go to court and the judge gives them the foreclosure order, you no longer own the home. So you don't immediately lose your home to tax sale. There's a process and there are opportunities to redeem. However, if you don't have $1,000 in April of this year, in December of next year, you, you're not likely to have $3,300. Right, right. Right. So when we talk about it being predatory, when you add up the cost, um, that's why we call it predatory because the $1,000 triples mm -hmm. in less than a year. And the way property taxes are assessed in neighborhoods, predominantly black neighborhoods, is using this gross income uh, multiplier when we know that rents, which is what the gross income is based on, rise higher and faster in our communities than the sales um, than the sales price. So, you know, there's a study from the Center for Municipal Finance that says, basically, the folks in Baltimore with the lowest property values, with the lowest, the, the lowest property values are paying disproportionately high, or assessed disproportionately high. Therefore, they're paying disproportionately high property taxes. So you're already paying, your, your tax bill is already too high. Then you get saddled with this interest and attorney's fees, which make it even higher. So when we talk about disparate impacts, like economically, our neighborhoods are under undervalued, but overassessed, And so that puts us in a situation economically where when you get that final bill and legal notice, right. you know, folks are doing something strange to get that change. Right. right. And you were even mentioning to me before about how one of the demographics and most impacts is a lot of our elders. It's elderly. So PBRC, which is the Pro Bono Resource Center, they do a lot of work surrounding helping folks navigate tax sale. Last year, 
85% of their um, clients in their tax sale clinics were elderly. I think 75% were women, 65% were widows. So that means big mama right, right. <laughs> is is one of the main people getting caught up in this predatory tax sale. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we really started pushing back or pushing this notion of saving big mama's house. Because when we talk about the social fabric of our families, when big mama's house is gone, that in ostensibly in many black families is the end is the end of it. Right. That house is uh, space and place for folks to really be family. And it is the center of black life. Mm -hmm. I don't know any black people mm -hmm. really um, where there isn't a story about Big Mama's house or aunt. it might not have been your grandmother. It mm -hmm. was somebody else's grandmother. That's it might have right. been somebody else's grandfather. Whatever. The, some Everybody has a family house story, mm -hmm. right? Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Kwanzaa, Eid, whatever, everybody has one of those stories. Those houses um, provide, obviously, housing. They provide food. They provide connection. And so when that is lost, you lose a cornerstone of the family. And so we really have been about the business of pushing back um, at the, to the city and the state to make sure that the, the city stops selling the debt to a third party. And it's about the business of figuring out why somebody doesn't have the money, helping them get it. Um, because right now, because of COVID, the Fed sent like $250 million to the state of Maryland to cover delinquent property taxes, ground rent, and water bills. So the city needs to be about the business of making sure that that money, which essentially is coming right back to the city, right. that people are able to apply for that money and get that money so that they are able to stabilize their housing outcomes. Um, so that's one of the policies that we've really been pushing back against um, mm -hmm. because it is one of the most devastating, you know, lose being displaced. Again, mm -hmm. what happens to a family? And for us, Dr. Brown talks heavily about this is like the seventh displacement for black people in Baltimore. You're displaced out of Africa, displaced from the waterfront um, or from, uh, up on the Federal Hill, Eastern Shore, uh, displaced um from the alley houses, right, when they did the urban renewal or um, the federal highways, when you had the highway to nowhere, now displaced out of East Baltimore, out of EBDI, um, displaced out of Park Heights. <laughs> like, how many times, how, you know, people can never, people can never get their footing if they keep shifting, shifting around. Like, unless mm -hmm. your indigenous practice is to be, you know, nomadic. Right, right. And that's not necessarily true of the people or the ethnic groups that, you know, we have mixed up and made our own new ethnic group around here. But right. that's not true of us. We're mm -hmm. not nomadic. Like, we, we set up shop. We have roots. People might go out, but you come back to that home base. And so every time that home base is disrupted, it's almost like starting over. You know, so that is one of the reasons why we're really focused on um, – you know, dismantling the tax sale um, altogether. It's like, there are other ways to handle this. And the truth is, you know, we hear a lot from folks at Bureau of Revenue Collections, oh, these people just don't want to pay their property taxes. And I'm like, you mean the lady who's been paying property taxes for 40 years and never missed it one time? 
or might have missed it once back in the nineties. You you telling me that that lady don't want to pay property taxes? And let's say she don't. I mean, black people were taxed without representation yeah, for 176 yeah. years plus. The last 50 was kind of iffy representation. Like, what do you mean? Y'all owe us anyway. And on top of that, we've been paying. That 40 years she was paying, she was paying disproportionately high property taxes because as soon as black people started acquiring property in Baltimore, they get, you know, there was this whole thing. Federal HUD said... Baltimore was doing what they call ghetto property taxes. And they knew that in the early 70s. Nothing happened to correct it. So we've been paying too much and losing on the other end. But you want to say people just don't want to pay. like Exactly. No. Yeah, that's one of the, I mean, to me, that's a really good example of an economic model that too often doesn't get challenged, which is this notion that the, or the phenomenon where it's really like poor working class black people for whom a lot of people are benefiting from financially and otherwise. And I think that tax is an example of a policy. They have a, they have a whole lobby. Mm-hmm. They had a, like, people's whole families have eaten for three generations now, extorting property taxes on behalf of the city and the state. Mm. Yeah. And you know it because when, as soon as we start to push back, the lobby shows up and they got all this stuff to say. And I'm like, oh, see, the difference is I don't really care. Like, I, I'm clear that y'all are eating. And no, that's over. Like, you're not going to keep, you know, because they come with all this. You know, the other thing they'll say is, well, the city can't run. And I'm like, okay, there's about $5 million every year. And the final bill and legal notice comes out of owner-occupied units and tax sale. So let's just say another $2 million in properties that are heirs' properties, tangled titles, so they're not property classified. Let's say it's $7 million. If this city can't miss $7 million, y'all need to file bankruptcy. Because really, black people didn't leave. We didn't flee the city. We didn't erode the tax base. White flight did that. Hopkins did that. Thirty percent of the properties in Bal- the real property in Baltimore is not taxable because of the ads and meds and the and the you know the Weinbergs and this that and the, you know these foundations and whatnot. That's not us. We didn't do that. We didn't erode the tax base. So how can you? And it's that kind of notion that keeps putting forth. So the city is alive on the backs of black people. And these tax certificate purchases, the ground rent, because that's another one, the ground rent folks, they, you got whole groups of people living their retirement. They are retired and moved elsewhere, and they live all from them ground rents. Yeah. So let's pivot and talk about, um, you know, visions of community development. So, you know, in light of, you know, you have some of our liberal progressive friends who, you know, will say, you know, they recognize the problem, they want to do something about it. And one of the things that we often have to push back against is gentrification. You know, so folks, you know, do good as want to come in and develop and have, you know, a lot of folks in our community mm-hmm. who, you know, you hear people talking about like positive versions of gentrification and whatnot. Um, so let's talk about let, let, So let's first um, talk explicitly around what is gentrification mm-hmm. and to the point that you kind of inferred just a moment ago, like why we shouldn't buy into any positive version of that. And then secondly, if you can talk about just examples or approaches to community economic development mm-hmm. that do not um, fit within the kind of predatory paradigm that you laid out. 
So to me, at least, gentrification is this notion of outsiders um, coming in with middle class or wealthy folks coming in and, and supplanting or displacing um, lower income people. And its original use was like in Europe. And it was wealthy white folks right. pushing out poor, um, poor white folks. The gentry, right? the, gent- the gentry, the right. landed class, right. right? And so in, but in the states, we see it. It's the same. It's the same model. You have wealthy people have decided, oh, I'm tired of living out Carroll County. I want to be close to the Orioles and the Ravens, so I want to move back. Now, initially, they started put it, pushing out white folks, poor white folks around that water. Uh, and now they have, you know, it's stretching its tentacles into our communities. And and typically what happens, because you'll ha- hear people say, well, we want nice things. And I'm like, well, why does somebody have to come from outside to instantiate nice things in our community? And what about their taste? Because I don't, you know, that doesn't, their taste or their needs or their desires aren't the only kind of nice things, right? So I challenge people who who will say, well, gentrification is good, it might be positive. Show me where gentrification hasn't led to displacement. I'm like, give me three examples on all of God's earth where the landed gentry come into a, a space, whether it has a lot of vacancy or not, and doesn't displace the indigenous population. Because to me, it's not even gentrification at this point. It is neo-urban colonialism. Um, and it's what it does, it's ethnic cleansing. If you look at East Baltimore, if you look at what happened in EBDI, if you look at what happened um, with the highway to nowhere, that was ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's clear. If you even look at the, the UN's definition, like based on ethnic group displaced by force, by state power, that is what happened, you know, that is what happened. So I challenge people to say that gentrification is good. Show me, show me where, show me where, you can do development without displacing people, absolutely, but show me where gentrification hasn't displaced people. Now, I would challenge, I've had black folks, and I know that there are black folks who um, come into community from other places, so you know, have come here from other places who, you know, are coming with that gentrification uh, worldview. And so, one, I say to them, well, in my opinion, if you got gentrified out of Harlem, Oakland, you can't come here and be no gentrifier. You can come and be an agent of gentrification, but be clear, you're being used in the same way you were used wherever you were before you came to Baltimore. So before you come with the, you know, trying to tell us what is what, be clear that one, black people in Baltimore have been at the forefront of freedom struggle here before anywhere else, almost, in the in what is now the United States. So you don't get to tell us. We know what it is. We've been <laughs> we've been in these trenches. Um, but you got displaced, you got pushed out of Oakland. You think you will come here and tell us what's what? Tell us how to be? No. You can come in, you can come into community and be with us. And say, hey, look, this is how they played us out there. Y'all might want to watch for that. What we gonna do about it? So it's the it's the framework from which um, black folks with money, or a couple with a couple with a couple coins, 
are coming into communities, not just here, but in Richmond and still in Philly and, in, you know, even mm. down south in some of the rural communities, that is problematic, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's like mm. we can work together because the truth is many of y'all people came from the Eastern Shore. That's right. Came from Baltimore, left, you know, what I call the black following, because you, your, mm. your people thought white people water was wetter yeah. in, yeah. in Owens Mills. So right. you ran out, and mind you, yeah. you ran, you left West Baltimore, right? You moved to Randallstown. So you left West Baltimore, you moved to Randallstown, you paid too much for that house. Mm-hmm. Then they moved to Carroll County. Then you decided, oh, Randallstown looking too bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you moved to Carroll County, you paid too much for that house. They then took that money, four hundred thousand, because they paid a hundred thousand for that house in the in the nineties. Mm-hmm. They back in Canton, mm-hmm. right? With two hundred thousand dollars in the house, they didn't bought a house in Canton and a house on the Eastern Shore, plus gave their kids eighty thousand dollars to buy a house wherever they at. Mm-hmm. And now you out Carroll County, house poor, trying to come to Baltimore and tell people who've been here what time it is. That's mm-hmm. not how it works. Mm-hmm. That's not how we do collective uplift. Mm-hmm. That that isn't that isn't the way mm-hmm. that isn't the way. So, so so talk about some of the um, approaches then. So we talked about the predatory. So look, tell us a little bit, uh, just from your perspective, the approaches to development that is like us building together right. that doesn't displace folks so, in our community. So one of the first things that we can do is recognize that Black people are um, we live intergenerationally. So even the notion that you have to run out and get your own place instead of um, staying at home and stacking up some cash and stabilizing the original homestead, wherever that may be, your parents' house, your grandparents' house, your, you know, your aunt's house, whatever, cousin, whoever, um, it's problematic, and we need to stop doing that because we live, that is our way. It's the, it helps the elders. It helps the children. It helps everybody be stable because you don't have to worry about a single income. You got multiple incomes coming in. You got multiple lines of of revenue coming in. So the first thing is to really change our worldview. This nuclear family setup is not, that's not the space that we create, and it's not good for us. So that's one. Um, So in that vein, making sure that we're securing Big Mama's house. So that means, you know, making sure that the taxes are paid, making sure it's a roof on it, making sure the plumbing is work. It's, it's all kinds of myriad of programs that are available that, that we can be helping each other navigate to secure, secure the house. When you secure that one house and the next house, you know, or the elders on the block, then, and you're someone's living there, home sharing or whatever have you, then it makes it easier for someone um, who may be, you know, ready, has saved their money to go and leverage a vacancy to value, right? Mm-hmm. To leverage something that is already there. Vacancy to value for people who So vacancy to value is the city's, like, um, it's not very effective. It's the city's disposition program for city-owned property, city-owned vacant properties. Mm-hmm. And so the notion is that they could um, take vacancy to value by um, creating a tunnel through which people could could purchase city properties. Got you get a boost of like ten thousand dollars. Da da da. Unfortunately, it hasn't worked very well for individuals because it doesn't have any wraparound services. And despite having the, the booster, many of these properties require one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. So you need some significant assets um, to 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 deal with that. And you know that the banks and the appraisal get 
has made that problematic. But when you are working together and you have spent a significant amount of time saving and then working with others, um, I don't think we should be buying single, not that no one should buy a single house, but they are collectives out here where people are developing together. Whether it is Charm City Buyers, whether it's Black Women Build, whether it's Parity Homes, there are folks out here where people are coming into home ownership or coming into property ownership um, in cohort. Again, collective uplift. We don't do anything by ourselves, right? That's what's the the um, parable, if you or the proverb, if you want to go far, go alone. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So our goal is to go far. We have to be doing these things together. Because then you can learn about all right, which construction, um, which general contractors we should be using, what to watch out for, how to redeem your ground rent, how to navigate these different programs all in, you know, all together. It, you know, it, it helps us support. So the, the model is to work together. I mean, it's really simple to work together. Find someone already doing the work, whether it is Black Eel. If your thing is you want to grow food on a vacant lot, link with Black Eel and the Farm Alliance and the Black Church Food Security Network. Because again, neighborhoods and vibrant neighborhoods aren't just about affordable and accessible housing. You got to have amenities. You have to have food. You have to have um, Health care, you have to have entertainment and, and other kind of recreational service. So find somebody that's working in the space that you want to be in mm-hmm. and, and link up. Because mm-hmm. all of those, there's people working in all of those to develop spaces, competent spaces for us, culturally appropriate spaces in all of the areas that are necessary to create a vibrant neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up a little bit, let's talk about, um, just tell people what are some of the projects or things you got coming up? and then tell people how they can support and get in contact with you. Sure. So one of the things that's really important to us is showing people, like giving people an example. So I noticed in doing the work there wasn't enough um, space in community, particularly in um, Old West Baltimore, to do innovation. Because to be frank, if Baltimore had spent as much time pathologizing black people in elevating the work that we were doing, whether it was hacking, then Uber's home would be here, right? Ride sharing is not new to black people, right? Um, Peapod would be here because the A-Rabbers, if they had invested in the A-Rabbers, because again, food delivery service um, and making sure we eat is not, that's not new to black people. And so there's not enough space for us to do innovation. In, in West Baltimore. So we've developed the Hack Hub, which is our youth-focused community-based imagination, innovation, and incubation space, which is currently inside of what used to be two blighted properties. And so we're fundraising surrounding that. We want to do a gut renovation and turn it into a state-of-the-art space because we should have dope stuff, right? We should have all of the smart screens and the Cat 5 and everything, you know, the 3D printers, all the stuff is necessary for our young people to bring their genius out. Um, and, and, and be able to do it using high-tech tools. Um, so that's one of the projects that we're working on. We're also right now still collecting money through our tax sale bailout to help support um, homeowners to secure Big Mama's house. Even though the state has the, the half funds and the city has um, 
their own mortgage protection program. There's still things that they won't pay for. It's still a timeline. Some We have people who are in various stages of foreclosure, and so we're raising money through the tax sale bailout to just pay the debt and get people also linked up with the resources they need so that they can stay in their um, stay in their home. So those are the two big projects that we're working on. We also work with Parity Homes. Um, they, they have a cohort at this point. I think there are about 50 or 60 people in their cohort that they are um, developing houses in Harlem Park together, not just with the people who are buying the houses, but the existing residents. Um, so that when folks come into community, we already have mobilized power mm-hmm. um and so for folks that are looking to do what i call a home a homecoming in harlem park it's like we're calling people in like come back mm-hmm. like now is the time because if we're not careful um <clears throat> we'll be flung all over in your power base when you're spread out mm-hmm. you can't it makes it more difficult to mobilize and so this is the time that we're really calling people to come Come, you know, come back. If you're looking for a home, Harlem Park is where it's at. Upton, Drew Heights, Park Heights, wherever. Come because we're there. Are people on the ground working with developing or redeveloping, re-energizing the power, the Black power base in Baltimore through, you know, collective and cooperative work. Mm-hmm. How can people get in contact with you? Sure. So they can email me at Nika at Fight Like Be More. They can check us out on. <clears throat> Facebook at Fight Like Be More, on Instagram at Project Like the Bright, and on Twitter at Fight Like Be More No E. All right. Well, appreciate you for rapping to me today. Look forward to, you know, keeping up with the progress of your work. All right. Thank you. <laughs>